Well, good morning, everyone. Can you hear me okay? All right. Well, this is uh, when uh, Stephen Cooper uh, emailed me and told me about uh, the f uh, determined my availability for preaching today. He told me that I could either preach on 2 Samuel 4, the verses today, or I could preach on something in Isaiah, which is what we're studying in BSF this year. So I read 2 Samuel 4, verses 1 through 12, and I said, oh, this is what, this is what I want. This is a great, great uh, piece of scripture. And the, the topic is the gospel breaks the cycle of violence in relationships. And I'm going to actually read that text. And you have the text on page six of your own um, bulletin, if you want to follow along as I read. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was Baana and the other Rechab. They were sons of Remon the Berathite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beroth fled to Gittaim and have lived there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled but as she hurried to leave, she fell, and he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Baana, the sons of Rimon the Barathite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth. And they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Baana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying in, on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, the sons of Remnon the Barathite, As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Let's take a moment and pray. 
God, uh, this is a hard passage. And we ask you to show in us uh, the lesson that we can learn on how to end the cycle of violence in our societies and in our own lives. In Jesus' name, I pray, or we pray, amen. Now, given what I just read, it may seem highly ironic that my talk is how to end the cycle of violence in human relationships. Well, we just read about a murder and then an, and cutting off somebody's head and then an execution where they take the hands and the feet. It doesn't sound like the path to reconciliation, does it? But we are plagued in our society um, by retaliation and violence. Our text is representative of the world's cycle of violence. I am reminded of Rwanda, which was once described uh, a tropical Switzerland in the heart of Africa. Uh, The Hutus and the Tutsis had lived together uh, for years. Uh, And most of the Rwandan population are Hutu. The Tutsis have moved down. They were... uh, traditionally property owners as they had flocks and they got larger and larger tracts of land to take care of their flocks. And over the years, um, for 600 years, they dwelled together in relative peace. They intermarried. They had the same language, the same culture, the same traditions. But there had also developed an animosity of the majority group against the minority group because the minority group seemed to fare so well in comparison with the Hutus. And one day, the king of Rwanda, or the president of Rwanda, was killed in an airplane crash on April 6, 1994. And the, the country of the, the Hutu population, inflamed by a few, were falsely led to believe that the Tutsis had bombed the president's plane and caused his death there began a rampage of violence for 100 days. 800,000 Tutsis were hacked to death in 100 days. Think of that, 8,000 people a day killed by hand. That violence is representative of what we see in all parts of the world today. This tragic tale is repeated over and over throughout human history, not just between nations, but between individuals and even within families, between husbands and wives and between siblings. The violence may not be physical, but it is emotional and it is the language we choose. We use words as swords. Our text shows outward justice often hides inward sin. Inward sin such as personal ambition, lust, desire for personal revenge. There is almost always a socially acceptable reason for this kind of violence. For the Hutus, it was the long-discussed final solution. They actually used that phrase in Rwanda. For Hitler, it was the final solution. 
slavery in the United States, black urban riots in the 1960s, there's always a socially acceptable reason given for the violence. The perpetrators of the violence like Ba'ana and Rakab see themselves as good and entitled to reward. We see all these elements in the murder of Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth was Saul's son after Jonathan. Given the death of Saul and Jonathan, Ishbosheth was the next to take the throne in the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. You may recall that at this time, the the true Israel had been divided into two parts. The northern kingdom was the ten tribes to the north. The southern kingdom is called Judah and consisted of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. So first, the murderers were not Ishbosheth's enemies. That's the first thing to understand. They were not his enemies. Ba'ana and Rechab were two brothers from uh, the tribe of Benjamin, which is in the southern kingdom, but they had immigrated to the north to become part of Saul's group or kingdom. And Ishbosheth was also a Benjamite. So they came from the same tribe and they were living in the same nation and they had the same purpose. Moreover, these two men were two of Ishbosheth's trusted captains. That's why verse 2 describes them this way as having led raiding bands. These were bands that would conduct raids southward into Judah to hurt David, to punish Saul's enemies, and to put Ishbosheth on the throne of a united kingdom that included the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. They were supposed to be Ishbosheth's protectors, not his predators. Second thing, everything had changed in the northern kingdom after the death of Abner that Stephen has talked about for several weeks. Abner was the charismatic, um, true leader of the northern kingdom. He was strong. He was a military leader. He was a man of great intellect great physical prowess, and Ishbosheth was able to hold up the northern kingdom only because Abner was there as the second in command, but really he was the power behind the throne. With Abner dead, these two brothers, Ba'ana and Rechab, start to weigh their future. And they conclude that their future is no longer in the northern kingdom, It's now with David, not because they believed that David was the appointed king of the whole of Israel, as the prophet uh, Samuel had announced to both Saul and the kingdom years earlier. That their motivation was not to see a united kingdom under God. Their motivation was to make sure that each one had a Cadillac or Mercedes in his garage when David became king of the whole nation. So now that Abner's dead, it's pretty clear to these two uh, fighting men that David was going to be victorious and unite the kingdom under his throne. So since they were Benjamites, they had lived in the southern kingdom where their loyalty should have been with David. They're thinking, how can we get on David's good side? Well, 
from a worldly point of view, the answer to them was obvious. We're going to kill David's enemy, Ishbosheth, and as proof that we did it, we're going to cut off Ishbosheth's head, take it to David, and then sit back and receive our reward. You just know that as they were traveling south with the Judah, they were describing what position they would take in the new kingdom and where they would build their house. Well, I want my house in La Jolla. And there's, no, no, I think I want Del Mar. They're only one, they had only one motivation. They want to be on the winning side. And interesting, the actions of Baana and Rahab were socially acceptable. Indeed, they wrongly thought they were doing David a favor. David would certainly reward them handsomely. And no doubt, many in David's camp, like Joab, probably celebrated the death of Ishbosheth and would have rewarded the two brothers had David not been king. One of the things that's striking about these murderous uh, brothers is that they never gave any thought to God's requirements under the law. They never gave any thought to the will of God, the purpose of God, or the plan of God. They never gave any thought to who God is and how he operates in our lives. They pursued their own selfish ambitions, and they did not seek to please God. In this regard, they are so like the world today. And unfortunately, even like some people in the institutional church who actually give no thought to God. It's not just thinking about God. A lot of people think about God. What this text focuses on is the desire to please God because you know him. So if I were to take a principle from this this first part of my talk, it would be this. Rejecting God's will perpetuates the cycle of violence that afflicts us today. Rejecting God's will perpetuates the cycle of violence that afflicts societies today. And let me ask if you perchance are caught up in your own cycle of violence. Do you give tit for tat? Do you cry, do you carry out fights in your mind? You know what I mean, don't you? If you are a husband or a wife, you have at some point in your marriage carried out an argument with your spouse who was nowhere present and did not participate in the argument. Are you just looking for the right opportunity to give someone a piece of your mind? Are you getting back at someone in the workplace by gossiping or complaining about them behind their back? As a spouse, are you withholding sex or affection or money from the other spouse as a way of getting even? From whom do you need to ask forgiveness? Whom do you need to forgive? Well, the first one is the way of the world. That's the first part of the talk. But the second part is the way of a man under God. David is horrified by what the two brothers have done. And what David did may surprise you because the Bible views his actions in a very positive light. In other words, according to the Bible, David did the right thing. So let me read verse 12. 
So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's town at Hebron. Now remember the background with Abner dead, having been killed by Joab, the, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the southern kingdom. The nation is on tender hooks. It could explode any moment. And every, many are wondering if David is in fact behind all of this. He may say he isn't, but is he the, is he the puppet master pulling the strings? The first thing that we have to understand is that David is not acting um, as an individual person, but as the head of state. His actions in ordering the execution of the two, two men is equivalent in our society of having a jury trial. The jury tri- Remember, these men have, have already said what they did. There was no need to have witnesses. They testified against themselves. So they have this trial, and they are the verdict is given, and the verdict is a death penalty. That is simply what David is doing. He is exercising his sovereign function as the head of the state. He is not personally taking vengeance as an individual. David's ruling was correct under Hebrew law. Exodus 20, verse 13 says, you shall not murder. And the word in the Hebrew means a premeditated act of violence, premeditated. Secondly, under Hebrew law, capital punishment under these facts was mandatory. So in Numbers 35, for example, it says, Anyone who kills a person, and it's the same Hebrew word from Exodus 20, to murder in a premeditated fashion. Anyone who kills a person is to be put to death as a murderer only on the testimony of witnesses. Well, of course, Rahab and Baana were their witnesses against themselves. So in other words, capital punishment was what the law required. Third thing to just bear in mind, David had a very high view of God and therefore a very high view of God's law. Psalm 119, one of David's great psalms, says this in verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. The Bible regards with great favor the person who delights in God's law. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Fourth factor here, there's a difference between the state executing justice and an individual taking revenge. Executing justice, that is punishing the guilty, is a necessary function of the state. The failure to do so always leads to a breakdown in society. People say there's no justice and they begin to take law into their own hands. Taking revenge, however, is stepping into God's place and acting in rebellion to God's authority. You've got to understand that. Taking revenge is stepping into God's place and acting in rebellion to his authority. Now, we have already seen from Stephen's earlier messages how David repeatedly insists on not taking revenge. And God has given him two very clear opportunities as a test of, what, of his heart. Once when Saul was in the cave going to the bathroom and David didn't kill him, The next, when David sneaked down into the camp and God caused a supernatural sleep to fall on all of the army, and they took the sword and the the drinking flask of Saul, went back, David and um, 
one of his men and then went back up in the mountain and shouted, hey, look what we have. Each time demonstrating to Saul and his armies that David could have taken revenge, but he did not. And let me tell you, David's men were really bugged by what he did. Abishai, who went down with David uh, the second time in the camp, whispered, and you know, I guess it wasn't even whispering. They, they must have clearly understood that God had brought a supernatural sleep on all of the camp. And Abishai said, just give me the word. I'll stab him to the ground, and I only need one thrust. And David said, as surely as, oh, let me, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come, that is, he will die a natural death, or he will die as he goes into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. David understood that God had sovereignly placed Saul in the throne and would sovereignly remove him from the throne. God had sovereignly called David to be king and would sovereignly determine the time when David would actually sit on the throne. David had a keen understanding of God's sovereignty and God's justice. David is under now this intense pressure to exact vengeance on Saul and his family for about 15 years while he is being pursued by Saul, having already been anointed king by Samuel. 15 years, he's on the lamb from this murderous Saul and his army. You have to know that at various points in time, Abishai and the other mighty men with David are, are grumbling at the missed opportunities. Remember, they are homeless as they travel with David. They can't go home and celebrate Thanksgiving because they're on the lamb with David. They know if they show up, they're dead men. And here are two opportunities where they can not only be free, but perhaps rich men, and David has blown it for them. That is the pressure that David is under to seek revenge in a worldly way. There are at least five important things that David, however, gets clearly. Number one, God is sovereign over everyone, including nations. God accomplishes what he wants, when he wants, and by the means he wants. He is completely unburdened by our opinions and actions. Second, God is holy and demands justice. And justice must be meted out in God's way and in God's time. Third, David knew that he was going to stand before God in judgment one day. Not for parts of his life, but for all his life. Every thought, every word, every deed. David knew this judgment was inevitable and inescapable. One of the key problems we have in the cycle of violence is that people do not believe that they will stand before God to give an account of what they do. Fourth, because David would one day stand before God to give account, he was utterly dependent upon God's salvation, without which David knew he would be eternally damned. And lastly, David understood hell. Let me repeat that. David understood hell. 
but more about that in a little bit. Because this takes us to the third point in my outline, the way of God. David, as I have already suggested, was a great student of the Hebrew Bible. He meditated on it day and night. He understood the way of God as set forth in Deuteronomy 32, 35, which says, and this is God speaking, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Two things are going on here. And now the Apostle Paul repeated this great truth in Romans 12, 19, when he's quoting the passage, says this, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So two amazing things are going on here which encapsulate the gospel. First, God will take a revenge. And second, God will repay. Let's look at the first part of that. God will take revenge. To take revenge is to exact punishment for a wrong. To exact punishment for a wrong. David now understood that all sin is actually against God only. We may wrong others, but we only sin against God. You got me? David wrote this after he was confronted by Nathan with his uh, adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah the Hittite, who was one of David's mighty men. He said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Because all sin is against God alone, no one has the right to personally pursue vengeance. That right belongs only to God. We are all sinners. We are all rightly under God's condemnation. Therefore, what right do we, the condemned, have to seek revenge against others? We would be like the two thieves being crucified, each on the side of Jesus Christ, railing against them and mocking him, though they are being hanged at the same time. People all over the world correctly cry for justice. That is a right cry. But when sinners like us cry for justice, we are holding a loaded gun against our own temple and then pulling the trigger. The more we cry for justice, the more our personal injustices condemn us. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, man has three basic ways of judging and and, uh, sentencing the wrongdoer. One is the perpetrator sets the penalty. The other is the victim sets the penalty. And the third is the community sets the penalty. 
But whatever our human system, it will always be flawed. If the, uh, and whatever our system, the perpetrator pays the penalty. You understand, the per- even if the perpetrator sets the penalty, he still has to pay it. Our justice is imperfect regardless of the human system we use. The perpetrator, if he sets the penalty, will obviously give himself a light sentence or no sentence at all. He will justify his wrong. I did it because I love you. I did it because I care for my country. But we will always have a reason. The victim, if the victim sets the penalty, is likely to be harsh, too harsh, and impose a penalty that doesn't fit the crime. And the community, when the community sets the penalty, it will tend to swing between the two extremes. We see this because if the community identifies with the perpetrator, the perpetrator gets off. That's why whites in the South would acquit Ku Klux Klan members who hanged black people, and the evidence was overwhelming. They walked. And the other extreme, when the community, again, if, if... if the community identifies with the victim, we're likely to be too harsh. As a result, when we get justice in a human context, that justice is often limited and often unsatisfying. Yet in the Deuteronomy passage I just read, God says he will take revenge and he will repay. It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, we can understand the concept of God's revenge. But what does it mean when it says, I will repay, says the Lord? Repayment is made by the perpetrator, not by the victim. It would make more sense if the Deuteronomy passage read this way. Vengeance is mine. I will be repaid, says the Lord. Or, vengeance is mine. I will make you repay, says the Lord. But it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. This incredible passage succinctly sets forth the gospel. It reveals both the judgment of God and the salvation of God. The judgment of God is clear in the passage. God will take vengeance on all sinners. Now, I'm not talking about race. I'm not talking about religion or nationality. This is not a Christianity versus other religions type thing. We are all sinners. This is not uh, us versus them. This is us versus God. We are all What's that song says? Standing in the need of prayer. Um, In Romans, there's this passage that when I was a young Christian, I used to resist this. Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And it's got to repeat that. Because we don't believe it. I would accept people. What about Big Mama? Big Mama loved me. Big Mama made apple pie for me. What do you mean? 
And he said, no, there is no one righteous, not even one. So we can understand that the judgment of God is clear from that passage, but where then does the Deuteronomy passage show us the salvation of God? In the Deuteronomy passage, God exacts revenge, yes, but he's also the one who makes the repayment. So let me take a moment and talk about hell and grace. There are places in scripture that talk about hell and it's described as a a place of fire and brimstone and other striking dramatic language like that. I regard such language as probably figurative, pointing to a reality much worse than the words describe. Let me give you a simple definition of hell. Hell is the complete and utter absence of God. Hell is the complete and utter absence of God. It is eternal existence without God. So let me put it in context. Everyone in hell will be there because they chose to be there. Hell is merely an extension of how they have lived their lives. It's an extension of their values, a tangible and eternal expression of their identities. They have sought a life without God. Now they have an eternity without God. And fire and brimstone does not begin to capture the horror of such an existence. Because of God's grace in our temporal world, we fail to see this. See, love, peace, contentment, fulfillment, sweetness, harmony, companionship, satisfaction, identity, comfort, wonder, discovery, all are aspects of God's being. These are not things that exist apart from God, and because God is holy, he is able to appropriate them infinitely and completely in his being. These things are God's very nature. They only exist because God exists. You understand me? So hell is the complete and utter absence of all such qualities. It is, for an example, an existence utterly devoid of love, peace, light, music, contentment, fulfillment, enjoyment, sweetness, identity, wonder, joy. Just go on and on. A complete and utter absence of these things. Now, God, in his perfect grace and mercy, allows us temporally to experience a small taste of these things as a picture of the eternal even when we live in complete rebellion against him. The worst criminal may experience some of these qualities in some way. Even Hitler had a girlfriend. Even Stalin enjoyed hunting and fine meals. Mao Zedong, who killed tens of millions of his people, enjoyed his favorite food, which was braised pork belly served with steamed bread. He could eat it and say, this is good. I'm enjoying this. I I love this food. It It tastes good to me. Not understanding that this is an aspect of God, his ability, our ability to enjoy Our ability to enjoy these things only exists 
Because God is willing to express his character through us, though we are sinners and rebel against him. Yeah, I think Adolf Hitler was a sinner. <laughs> so hell will be the utter absence of God. Hell was what Jesus experienced on our behalf. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or to paraphrase it, my God, my God. Why are you utterly absent? We need to understand that it is hell that gives God's love context. When we say God loves you, that does, that's the same thing that Diana Ross says before a crowd of people who just paid $400 a ticket to see her. I mean, what does that mean? All right, so if I go to Sunil and I say to Sunil, hey, there was a, a guy at your door. He said, uh, you owed him money. I paid it for you. Sunil does not know how to respond to my statement until he knows the size of the debt. And his response is different if the debt is a nickel or if the debt is $50 million. A nickel, he would pay me back. $50 million, he throws his arms around me and kisses me. So without an understanding of what hell is and that Jesus experienced it on our behalf because he loves us, then his love has no context for us. And we treat it cheaply. We don't understand what it cost him to love us. If in our society, no, okay, so how do we know that God loves us? Because his only begotten son voluntarily, knowingly experienced the utter absence of God on our behalf so that you and I could experience the glory and sweetness of God himself for an eternity. If in our society the victim chose the punishment and agreed to bear that very punishment for the perpetrator, injustice would be very imperfect still. What victim would bear the penalty the crime truly deserves? What victim would bear the penalty the crime truly deserves? But because God is holy and just and because he is loving, these are qualities that are not in conflict with God. They are entirely harmonious aspects of his being. God does not ask his father to lessen his justice because he is going to bear the penalty. God is God. And Jesus bore the penalty and perfect justice required a perfect penalty and that the penalty fit the crime and the penalty is to be separated from God for an eternity. I want you to imagine uh, 
that, you know, we're from eternity east to eternity west, but the sheer depth of the holiness of Jesus Christ. All, and, and it's like a, a sea with no bottom. And all the, all the sins we've ever committed are just taken down upon Jesus in this great valley of water. But because he is infinite holiness, he can experience that eternity in a moment of time and it never exhausts his being. Wow. Without hell, God's love has no context for us. Without hell, we do not, indeed, we cannot understand the enormity of the salvation God extends to us through Jesus Christ. You see, King David got this. He understood that he would not, indeed, could not take revenge. First, he understood that the sin was not against him, but against God, and that God would exact a perfect vengeance. He would be utterly perfect and give people only what they have always sought, an existence without him for eternity. But he also understood that God poured out on Jesus the revenge that David earned. God says, I will repay for Bill McCurin, for Stan. So to the perpetrators out in our audience, and I've been a perpetrator, this is an opportunity to repent of the harm that we have done or are doing to others. It is an opportunity for us to reconcile with our victims because God has reconciled us to himself through the death of his son. But to the victims, to the people who have suffered wrongs, search your own heart. How have you retaliated against those who have wronged you? How are you expressing today the wonder of God's mercy in your life with the people that you live with or work with, with your neighbors. And to the person who might out there be both perpetrator and victim, that is, you have done something terrible. I fall in that category. You regret it but either you will not receive Christ's forgiveness or having received it, you do not live in his forgiveness. You are continually beating yourself up for the thing you have done. Now, I'm not talking about forgiving yourself, which is a concept I don't quite get. I am talking about receiving and living in the only forgiveness that matters, the forgiveness that God extends to us through Jesus Christ, his son. And I mean, and naturally the question is, okay, how do I do that? It almost would be more worthwhile if I could tell you, you run a marathon and then you swallow ground glass and then you fast for 40 days because then you'd say, okay, I can do that. But the answer is you simply do it by faith. It is both that simple and that hard. It is a battle of faith. It is a battle up here in the mind. 
like barring a criminal who's trying to sneak into your house either through threat of violence or through uh, cajoling you. Don't open the door. Bar the door. When the thought comes in that you are unworthy, that Christ couldn't possibly forgive you, that you are still the same bloody, bloody, blah you've always been, you just say, Yes, I'm lousy, but my God is perfect. I deserve to be condemned, but he has forgiven me. I am in him a new creation. Today I can walk forward in freedom, not because of what I've done, but because what he has done for me, that own cycle of violence that I have perpetrated and that I'm now making myself the victim of, I'm giving it up today because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we are uh, so mindful of our utter need for you. God, not, not the things that you do for us, which we appreciate, but what we need is you. For in you is all joy and all peace and all harmony and all goodness and all love and fulfillment and identity. God, let us be peacemakers in our home and in our workplace and our families and our community and in our own hearts let the let the battle be surrendered to the sovereignty of Jesus Christ and his finished work amen